It's a pleasure to be able to be here this morning and speak to you from God's Word. Before we do that, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the encouragement that this morning has been. We thank you for these dear younger people who have all got baptized. Father, we thank you that by your Spirit, you open their eyes at one time or another to understand your Word. So we ask that this morning, you would do the same now for each of us here. Amen. I wonder who you would rank as the greatest substitute of all time. Uh, Maybe you think it's Jermaine Defoe. Uh, There's there's some good West Ham and Spurs fans here. There's some some West Ham and Spurs fans here. Uh, Jermaine Defoe is the all-time Premier League top goal scorer as a substitute. That's quite a record. He scored 24 times from off the bench. He was a game changer. Uh, Or perhaps you think the greatest substitute of all time is soya milk. It's not always all about football with me. Maybe you're lactose intolerant. And when you found soya milk, it was the greatest thing since sliced bread. Until you found out you were gluten-free too. (laughs) Or maybe you think it's the song by The Who called Substitute. Can you remember it? I don't remember it. It was released in 1966. Here's what it says. Substitute me for him. Substitute my Coke for gin. Substitute you for my mum. At least I'll get my washing done. They don't write songs like that anymore, do they? Well, in this passage this morning, we're going to see Jesus introduced to us as a substitute, the greatest substitute ever. But Jesus is shown as a substitute in the context of him being shown as a life giver throughout the whole of John's gospel. The whole gospel has been jam-packed full of life language. I was talking about this with someone this week, and they said, yeah, all right, I get it. Life, 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 life. Yet that's John's gospel. Jesus is the bread of life. He gives living water. He gives life to the full. And last week we saw in the first half of chapter 11, and Matt already mentioned this, that Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. And then of all of the signs and miracles that Jesus has done so far, and each of them have shown in little ways how Jesus has brought life, they all culminated last week in him raising Lazarus from the dead. A dead man came back to life. That, that's such a well-known miracle, isn't it? That it's moved into popular culture. Whether it's a sports star who, who gets tapped on the shoulder and they fall down clutching their face until the action comes back near them and they pop up straight away. Or, or, a, or a politician who's making a comeback after a misdeed. They're all said to do a Lazarus. To come back. But that underplays what's actually happened to Lazarus, though. He's just not had a knock on the knee. He was dead. He was in the grave for four days. And now, he's alive. But but here in verse 45, at the beginning of the passage that we're going to be looking at this morning, the focus switches from the death and life of Lazarus to the life and death 
of Jesus Christ. And we see our first point, and that is that the people are divided about Jesus. The passage starts with two reactions to what Jesus has done, two different responses to this incredible raising of a dead man, because Jesus divides people. We saw last week that Jesus asked, do you believe? And here the response is mixed. Uh, Please keep your Bibles open at John chapter 11. It'd be great if you could check that what I'm saying is really in the Bible. Uh, Let me read from John 11 verse 45 and 46. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Uh, The first group of people uh, see what Jesus did And they believe in him. They see the sign. They see the miracle. They see the power. They heard Jesus shout to a corpse, come out. And then they saw that he did. So they believe. But there's another group too in verse 46. They look innocuous enough at first. They don't seem to immediately oppose Jesus as some people have done in John's gospel. These two groups of people see the same thing, but there's a contrast. The first believe, and the second don't. Instead, they go and they tell the Pharisees what Jesus has just done, which leads to our second point. The leaders are amazed by Jesus. The Pharisees hear about Lazarus being raised from the dead, And immediately they call together the ruling council of the nation, the top dogs in the land. But this is a little bit more like an emergency war coalition cabinet. The Pharisees at that time were outnumbered by another religious political group at the time called the Sadducees, and they didn't get on one bit. But here, they come together to decide what to do about a problem called Jesus. Could you imagine if this week... Boris Johnson, Jeremy Corbyn, Joe Swinson, Nigel Farage, maybe throw in Nicola Sturgeon and Sean Berry too. Imagine they all set everything to one side and came together for the common good to work together. That is almost unbelievable, isn't it? But here, that is exactly what happens. But what they say at this meeting, at this gathering, is surprising. Look at verse 47 and 48. What are we accomplishing, they ask. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. I don't think it's quite clear at first glance what it is that they're saying. Because it sounds, doesn't it, like they're a little bit in awe of what Jesus has done and has been doing. In fact, that is exactly the case. They are in awe of what Jesus has done. They sound like fans. We've already been told, though, in John chapter 5, that they're trying to kill Jesus. So when they say, what are we accomplishing? What have we achieved? The answer is nothing. Jesus is very much alive. And not only that, in comparison, Jesus has accomplished loads. He's gone and fed 5,000 men with five loaves and two fish. He's walked on water. He's given a man who was blind from birth sight. He's taught people, many people, and while opinions still divided and some are against him, 
he's gaining new followers all the time. And from their perspective, to top it all off, he's just raised someone from the dead. No wonder they think the outcome's inevitable, verse 48. If we let him go on like this, if nothing changes, if we don't stop him, then everyone will believe in him. Despite the fact that they are Jesus' enemies, they can't deny the miracles that are before their eyes. They have to admit what he's done and the effect that he's having on people. But that takes us to our third point. Because the leaders might be amazed by Jesus, but in verse 48 at the end there, they reject the authority of Jesus. Because the end of that verse, verse 48, betrays their real concern and the reason why they're definitely not believers. And then, they say, the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. These leaders only care about their own position and rule. The disaster of all disasters for them would be that the Romans would come in and strip them of their authority and their status and their place, their temple and their nation. They, they don't really care about Jesus. Jesus can do whatever he wants unless it impacts them. Feel free to raise people from the dead, Jesus. Feel free to give sight to the blind, Jesus. Go ahead. Do good works, Jesus. But when you start impacting my life, then you've crossed the line. That's always why people reject Jesus. Ultimately, anyone who rejects Jesus says, my life is my own. I don't want anyone else, especially Jesus, impacting on it encroaching on it, coming into my territory, making any changes, pulling rank on me. I don't want to lose what I've got. I won't bow to Jesus' authority. I wonder if that might just resonate with some of us here this morning. Maybe you've heard about Jesus in the past or read parts of the Bible. You might even be listening to what you're hearing right now and thinking, that's all fine. Jesus, miracles, some evidence, seems like a great guy, good teacher, as long as it doesn't impact on me. You might have come here this morning and be friends or family or, or just seen Chiddy and Bryn and Alan and Hattie and Sophie and Tom and Lottie and you might be thinking, that's fine for them. In fact, you might be really pleased, that's great for them, as long as it doesn't impact on me. Well, while most of this council dither and doubt, not sure what to do about Jesus, one man, Caiaphas the high priest, is both decisive and vocal. He comes up with a solution. And that's the fourth thing we see in this passage. Caiaphas convinces the leaders to kill Jesus. <coughs> Excuse me. See what he says at the end of verse 49? You know nothing at all. Those words that he says are about as emphatic as it's possible to say. You have no idea what you're on about. You're clueless. In fact, he's, he's calling them idiots. It's venomous what he says. And verse 50, 
You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. Let's get this over and done with, he says. Who would you rather be destroyed? All of us or one of him? Our whole nation or just one man? Come on, it's obvious. Let's get rid of him. And he convinces the leaders to kill Jesus. We see that in verse 53. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. No half measures anymore. They're on board. Well then, Caiaphas, if you're saying it's us or him, well, okay then, I I guess it's got to be him. But then fifthly and finally in this passage, John explains the death of Jesus. John, as the author of this gospel, sometimes gives his readers a bigger view of the events themselves, a macro instead of a micro view. And here in verse 51 and 52, John explains the significance of the death of Jesus. Let me read verse 51. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. Here, John tells us that as Caiaphas speaks, God also speaks. While Caiaphas speaks out of his evil heart, God speaks out of his sovereign purpose. Caiaphas speaks more than he knows. It's not just deathly words to an angry chamber. It's a prophecy, a foretelling of the future, an unpacking of what is about to happen. And here we get to the crux of this passage. Because John tells us that Jesus will die a substitutionary death. Jesus will die for others. The fact of the matter, John tells us, is that if Jesus dies, because Jesus dies, others live. It's his life instead of theirs. He is the greatest substitute ever. I was chatting with someone a couple of weeks ago, and they told me that they had a twin brother. I didn't know that, and so I asked if they were identical. That's a classic question to ask, isn't it? And to answer my question, they told me this story. They both used to work here, not here in the church, but here in RAF Chessington Hospital, the the hospital that used to be on this site. And when they signed up, they both got their duties. One was assigned to plaster broken bones in the ward, while the other was assigned to the lab to do blood work. They both went through a bit of training, and they enjoyed the first few weeks, but they woke up one morning not too long in, and decided that they fancied a bit of a change. So they give each other a quick debrief, and that morning, they swapped. And they did each other's jobs. And nobody noticed. For years, they were able to learn each other's jobs, and depending on how they felt each day, depending on how things were going, they substituted for each other. Isn't that amazing? 
Uh, he, he said that once an officer was walking down a long corridor and walked past him at the top, and he said, morning, sir, and got down to the bottom of the corridor and passed what the officer thought was him again, morning, sir, and he went away and wanted to give them a commendation that this one man could work so hard. <laughs> I'd love a substitute like that sometimes. Well, here John specifically tells us that Jesus will be a substitute when he dies. He will die for, stand in the place of, die instead of others. Jesus will die a substitutionary death, the greatest substitute ever. And in verse 52, John flags up what Jesus' substitutionary death accomplishes. Let's pick it up halfway through verse 51 there. As high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. Jesus' death isn't just for one nation, for one group of people, but for anyone at all so that anyone can become part of God's family. In this verse, John's pulling together a whole host of themes that he's flagged up for us throughout his gospel. We're going to go back to just one. Please turn back to John chapter 1, verse 12, or the words are going to come up behind me on the screen. John brought this theme up right at the start of his gospel. John chapter 1, verse 12. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children not born of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. Jesus' death from the beginning of John's gospel has been seen not just as a substitutionary death for Jewish people, for those born of natural descent, but for anyone who believes in the name of Jesus that they will come into God's family. In short, here in John 11, uh, verse 51 and 52, uh, John tells us that Jesus will die a substitutionary death to give life and to bring people into God's family. But you've already heard that many times already this morning. Earlier this week, I was able to get a sneak peek of all of the testimonies that you can find in these booklets this morning. They are fantastic, aren't they? If you haven't read them, please do take them home and read them. They're just brilliant. Let me just read to you what Bryn said. I am getting baptized today because I believe that I am a sinner in need of rescuing. And I believe Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to earth and died for all my sins and all the evil things I've done and will do. And here's his last line. I want to become a member of this church and continue my walk with Christ in this local part of God's family. That is the gospel. Jesus died a substitutionary death instead of Bryn to give Bryn life and to bring him into his family. Jesus died a substitutionary death instead of Chiddy and Alan and Hattie and Sophie and Tom and Lottie to give each of them life 
and to bring all of them into God's family. As Bryn said, we're all sinners in need of rescuing. We've all rebelled against God's rule in our life, against Jesus' authority over us. And we all deserve the punishment of death. But if you believe in him, you can have life through Jesus' substitutionary death and be brought into God's family. It's just an incredible thing that that is why Jesus came to die. He was born to die. He he came to die a substitutionary death to bring life. We see that in verse 54. The threat to Jesus' life is real. He's faced persecution and antagonism so far in his ministry. But for now, he lies low. But only until it's time for him to die. He will appear again at Passover. Passover in the Bible is the classic time of rescue. If you're a Christian here this morning, he came to die a substitutionary death instead of you. To bring you life. Isn't that amazing? Have you thanked him for that this morning? Have you thought about that this morning? In the build-up to Christmas, are you thanking God and thinking about Jesus each day of Advent, dwelling on the fact that he sent his one and only son to die as your substitute? The baby in the manger grew up to be the man on the cross instead of you. The Jewish leaders were, were amazed by Jesus, but they rejected his authority. They wanted a Messiah. They wanted a king who cost them nothing. All they wanted to do was to make sure that they kept hold of their status and their power and the position. But Jesus was the Messiah who gave up everything, regardless of the cost to himself. And they were only unwilling to come under the authority of the one who loved them so much that he came to die. Caiaphas spoke more than he knew. He said, it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. But they rejected him. If you would like to consider the life of Jesus in more detail, there are a whole host of ways that you can do so. Ask the person who brought you here this morning if they would read the start of the Gospel of John with you. I'm sure they'd love to. If you're here on your own, I'll be standing at the back in the FYI area. Please come and talk to me. I would love to read John's gospel with you. Over the next few weeks, we've got carol services here at church where you can come and hear more about the baby who came to die. After Christmas, we begin a Christianity Explored course here where you can spend more time evaluating the evidence about Jesus. But the question that we need to ask this morning is the question that is echoed across the whole of John chapter 11, last week and this. Jesus asks, do you believe this? That is the question. We've seen the evidence. His enemies couldn't deny it. 
We've seen the love of the one who came to die. The one whose authority we must come under. The people in verse 45, as we saw at the beginning, did believe in Jesus. But the people in verse 46 didn't. But guided by God's sovereign will and purpose, their actions led to the death of Jesus. A substitutionary death that would give people life and bring them into God's family. Do you believe this? Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the birth and the life and the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that his life was substitutionary, living the perfect righteous life that none of us ever could. And Father, we thank you that today we've seen in John's gospel that he came to die a substitutionary death that we deserved to bring life and to bring people into your family. Thank you for these dear ones who have shown and publicly proclaimed that that is what has happened to them this morning. And we do pray, as we asked before, that by your Holy Spirit, you would bring new life and that more people would enter your family, even here this morning. In your name, amen.